The Old Testament reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Then David again gathered all the elite troops in Israel, 30,000 in all. He led them to Balah of Judah to bring back the Ark of God, which bears the name of the Lord of Heaven's armies, who is enthroned between the cherubim. They placed the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it from Abinadab's house, which was on a hill. Uzzah and Ahio, Abinadab's sons, were guiding the cart as it left the house, carrying the Ark of God. Ahio walked in front of the Ark. David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But when they arrived at the threshing floor of Nacon, the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah reached out his hand and steadied the ark of God. Then the Lord's anger was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him dead because of this. So Uzzah died right there beside the ark of God. For the past month or so, we've been exploring the books of First and Second Samuel. Last week, we, we looked at David's lament as he lamented the death of Saul, his enemy, and Jonathan, his friend, when they were killed in battle. Today, we're looking at a story that revolves around the Ark of the Covenant, and we're going to break it into two parts, considering first, the implications for how we worship, and secondly, the implications for how we live. Both stories revolve around King David. When we pick up the story in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, David is finally the king of a united country. Now, David's journey to the throne began when God selected him from the seven sons of, of Jesse to be king after Saul. But it was a long and a convoluted journey. David was in exile for many years as Saul did his best to kill him. But now, following Saul's death, David has finally become king, but over only one tribe, the tribe of Judah. The other tribes gave their allegiance to the son of Saul, whose name was Ishbosheth. Now, as king over Judah, David reigned in the town of Hebron for seven and a half years. What you see here on this slide is um, a stamp, an Israeli stamp, that honors David's reign in Hebron as king over Judah. Abner, Abner, you'll remember, was a uh, cousin of Joab. Abner was a general under Ishbosheth. Uh, in, in the northern part of the country. And he organized a coup that led to David finally becoming the king over a unified country, all 12 tribes. Saul's son was murdered in that coup, but please know that David, according to Scripture, had no part in that, did not know it was going to happen, and was very angry when it did. David, who had, who had been so careful not to lay a finger on Saul, during all those years when Saul was trying to kill him. One of David's first acts as king over both all 12 tribes was to move his capital from Hebron to Jerusalem. We read this in 2 Samuel chapter 5. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years in all. He had reigned over Judah from Hebron for seven and a half years, and from Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah. For 33 years. 
The second thing that David did after he became king over the whole country was move the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. In doing this, David was not just doing something political, he was doing something spiritual. He was reintroducing the Ark of the Covenant into the worship of God's people. But also by bringing them to Jerusalem for worship, he enhanced the role of Jerusalem as the center of the country. We might say he was killing several birds with one stone. The ark, you see, had been out of sight and out of mind for 75 years, give or take. You'll recall that it was captured by the the Philistines in in 1080 B.C. Uh, They tried to keep it in their temple, but it kept creating havoc for all their idols. They kept falling over mysteriously during the night. And uh, Philistines started getting quite ill. So finally the sight of the ark wasn't a good thing for them, so they sent it back to Israel, where it sat in the home of a man by the name of Abinadab for nearly 75 years. Now joined by some 30,000 people, David is bringing the ark to his capital city. And whatever else one might say about this procession, they were having fun. Look at verse 5 in 2 Samuel 6. David and all the people of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, singing songs and playing all kinds of musical instruments, lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. They essentially just emptied out the whole band room and took it on tour. Every instrument they had, they had it out there playing loudly as they were taking the ark back to Jerusalem, or to Jerusalem for the first time. Now, while we don't know what they were singing in that procession, we do know what the dominant emotions were. There were joy and laughter. The word we translate as celebrate in this verse comes from the same root as the name Isaac. You remember what the name Isaac means? It means he laughs. He laughs. So this word celebration really means to laugh. They were laughing. They were having a great time singing and laughing and being joyful. Joy and laughter. And yet, something happened that brought their laughter to an abrupt end. A man named Uzzah died. The ark had been placed on a cart pulled by oxen, a new cart. But it might have been a bit like a Winnipeg road in spring because the cart hit a bump or a pothole and the oxen stumbled and the, ark, the, the cart began to teeter a little bit, and Uzzah reached out and touched the ark to steady it. And Uzzah died. You see him there on, on the uh, left side of the picture, lying on the ground next to the cart. That shocks us, for we assume that Uzzah was simply trying to do a good thing but he was breaking God's rules. But regardless of his motives, he was denying and breaking God's instructions. His death was entirely avoidable. David should have known better. David had the scriptures in front of him. He had priests that he could consult. He should have known better. The ark was not to be carried on a cart. It was to be carried by poles that rested on the shoulders of Levites men who had been set aside specifically for the service of God. 
Had David followed God's instructions when making his plans, the ark would have been carried on the poles of Levites, as we see in this old painting. Men set aside for God's service. Now, David was sincere in his planning. He did love God. There's no question about it. He wrote beautiful psalms of of praise and worship that we still sing today and read today. Some suggest that it matters less how we worship than that we worship with a sincere heart. There's a bit of truth in that because we should worship with sincerity. We should worship truthfully. But we must never lose sight of the one we're worshiping. And we must always remember that we have to approach God according to his instructions. The ark was not magical, but it was a powerful symbol of the presence of a holy God. That's what it was there for. It was to remind them that they belonged to Yahweh and that he was with them wherever they were. The ark was not to be worshipped. It was not to be honored, but it was to be respected because it represented God. But in their worship, there were rules for how the ark should be handled. Now, this takes us also back to a, another story from 1 Samuel that I don't think we, I don't think we looked at. I think we skipped over it. Where, where Saul is offering a sacrifice with animals he have ca- he's captured from the enemy. And Samuel shows up. And Samuel says, you're not supposed to do this. You were supposed to kill those animals. And, and Saul says, well, I saved the best to sacrifice them to God for worship. And Samuel says, obedience is better than sacrifice. In fact, I think we know down deep inside that we really can't worship, we can't separate worship from obedience. And obedience is one of our best forms of worship, one of our truest forms of worship. Now, sometimes God's rules seem rather silly, almost arbitrary. What? You, you, can't, you can't put the ark on a cart? It's a more efficient way to move it. But it's all because we don't really understand the consequences and we don't understand what's at stake. It's like telling a young child not to play in the street because there's cars, there's traffic. The young child doesn't really understand the physics of what happens if a 2,000-pound car hits a 30-pound child and they don't understand the consequences. So we just have to be very firm. You don't understand the rule, but the rule is don't play in the street. There's lots of little rules that God gives us that don't make sense to us simply because we don't understand the consequences, either for ourselves or for others. We come to church partly to be reminded of our need to be attentive to God. But when we come to church, we also need to be reminded that we're worshiping a holy God whose expectation for us is that that we be holy. And to get there, we need obedience, and we need to practice obedience. Like Moses, we come to to God on holy ground. 
remembering that he has high expectations for us. He wants us to be like him because he loves us and he wants what's best for us. And to get there, we need to bring our lives into conformity with his divine instructions. Now, Wendy and I have been married 18 years. And uh, when we got married, she said, you know, I love you. And I'm going to be hard on you because I have high expectations for you because I love you. And sometimes she is a bit hard on me. And I chafe under that. I don't like that. Now we have Anna. And we both love Anna very much. But we have high hopes and great expectations for Anna because we love her so much. We want her to be all that she's capable of being. So what do we do? We try to impose some discipline on her life. And we try to get her to do things that she doesn't really want to do that much because we love her. What is her job? To obey. What's our job? To give her some things to obey for her good, that she can become the person that she's created to be. This is how God is with us. He loves us. And because he wants what's best for us, he gives us instructions that we need to follow. Loving him back, the God who loves us, requires obedience. Love and obedience come together in proper worship. God desires that we worship and love him with all that we are, with all of our heart and our soul and our strength. The the Jewish people had one verse that they would literally die for, and it's called the Shema. The Hebrew word Shema means hear, which is the first word of the verse. This is a verse they would die for. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 and 5. This is one of God's instructions for us, that we come to him with our whole heart, our entire soul, and all of our strength. Now, an older translation of 2 Samuel that we've been looking at, where it said David and the people were celebrating, says this, that they were worshiping with all their might. Now, the problem is that translation is not quite true to the Hebrew, but it's absolutely true to the story. In the story, we see David and his 30,000 people worshiping with all of their might, all of their strength, putting everything they had into it, all of their instruments. Isn't this what we want for Elam? Don't, Don't we feel a tug, a call to be worshipers like David? to worship with all our might, to give it everything we've got? Well, let's learn well from David that we need to give ourselves in all of our energy to worship, but we also need to be attentive always to his instructions. Let's worship like David with all our might, but let us never forget the instructions that we have for worshiping him. Let's pray. Father, help us in our worship and in all of our service to you to keep our eyes fixed on you that we might worship you in pleasing ways. In the words of a very old prayer, we ask you to cleanse the thoughts of our hearts 
by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we might perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. I'd like you to join with me in, in reading the Shema. It's going to be on the screen. Let's read this together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your strength. Continuing on with our scripture reading from Second Samuel, beginning in chapter 6, uh, verses 12 to 23. Now it was told to King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord, with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the women and the men, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. Then David returned to bless his household, and Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. In our first reflection on Second Samuel chapter 6, we looked at how we worship. In this section, I'd like to look at how we live, implications for living. Now, David was pretty angry with God over the death of Uzzah, but he didn't give up. He corrected his mistakes, and he started all over again. And now the band is smaller. And the first time we, we have all these instruments, but now it's just trumpets that are mentioned. And, and the ark is carried... Back, back up to that other one. Can you back up one? Thanks. And, and, and now the ark is being carried on poles. You see the poles on the shoulders of the Levites there in the picture. This is the way it should have been 
the first time. And David is leading the procession now, and he's dancing for all he's worth. The, the word is, dancing here is not a common word in, in the Hebrew. It, it means to whirl, literally just to spin around. So you get this image of David who's leaping and jumping and whirling and going crazy, as, as it were, having a great time as he's leading in the celebration of this historic occasion, bringing back the ark to the center of national attention. Now, when they arrive at the tent that David has set up for the ark, he offers sacrifices for the people. On behalf of the people, he offers uh, burnt offerings, he offers peace offerings, um, and then he distributes food to everybody. He just hands out a ton of food so that everybody can take this food, go home, and carry on the celebration. And he seems to have been planning to go home and continue the celebration with his own family. But now as David is dancing before the Lord with all his might, there's back up, back up to one slide. We're ahead by one. Um, there's one particular witness as he's dancing. It's my call up there in the, in the corner of the photo. And she's watching. It's David's wife watching him dance. So when David gets home, he encounters a foul-tempered wife who spares no words. How glorious was the king of Israel today uncovering himself in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. She puts a bold and dramatic end to David's celebration. What exactly was going on here? I, I think we can begin to figure it out if we refresh our memories on the history of this story. Michal was the younger daughter of Saul, the first king of Israel. And she was smitten, smitten by the young man David. And she fell in love with him about the time that David killed Goliath. This is what we read in 1 Samuel 18, verse 20. Saul's daughter, Michal, had fallen in love with David. And Saul was delighted when he heard about it. Here's another chance to see him killed by the Philistines, Saul said to himself. But to David, he said, today you have a second chance to become my son-in-law. I'm going to give you something for a trivia pursuit game based on the scripture. Or should you ever occur on, uh, be, appear on the TV show, uh, is it, what is the show where it does, the Canadian guy, Jeopardy, or if you're ever on Jeopardy, I'm lo- my, losing my memory. Only one woman in the entire Bible is credited with loving her husband. Who's that one woman? My call. Now, we, you, you see women loving their husbands throughout the Old and New Testament. This is the only time in the whole Bible where it's actually written that she loved her husband. My, my call was in love with David. Uh, this, next, this is uh, Gregory Peck playing David, and this is um, Jane Meadows playing my call. Uh, Jane was an interesting character. She, she was born in China, And as soon as you read that, you say, oh, I bet her parents were missionaries. And yes, indeed, she was born to missionary people in China. 
Now, anyway, all, all David had to do to earn the privilege of marrying Michal was to bring a bride price of 100 Philistine foreskins. Now, this is a plan that, that Saul had been hatched in, in his head for a long time. He first offered his uh, daughter Merib to, to, to David, but uh, David was humble, and, and, and David said, no, I'm, I'm not worthy to be the king's son-in-law. I'm not worthy. So he canceled it, and then all of a sudden he finds out that Michal is in love with David, and he says, here's a chance to do this again. Now, he, Saul knew that the Philistines weren't going to give up their foreskins without a bit of a fight, and he figured that that would be the end of David. David would be killed. But it didn't work. Uh, it didn't work for two reasons. Number one, David didn't bring back 100 foreskins. He brought back 200, and he came back alive. So now, uh, David's, uh, Saul's got a real problem. David is not just alive, he's part of the family. David was in line, at least, at the least, to be the father of Saul's grandchildren. At the worst, to replace Saul. Now, what about Michal in all of this? What was she? She was a pawn. She was a pawn being used by her own father to try to kill David. Well, so things weren't going well for Saul, and, and so he came up with another plan, a more direct approach. He ordered his soldiers to go to David's house and kill David during the night. But Michal found out about it, and she saved David's life. We read it in 1 Samuel 19, verses 11 and 12. Then Saul sent troops to watch David's house. They were told to kill David when he came out the next morning, but Michal David's wife warned him, if you don't escape tonight, you'll be dead by morning. So she helped him climb out through a window, and he fled and escaped. So from now on, until Saul's death, David's on the run. He's in exile, running for his life, trying to avoid Saul's armies. There's no evidence that David ever invited Michal to come and join him. Well, he said, well, of course not. He's, he's, he's on the run. It's dangerous. He's being hunted. Ah, true. But that didn't take Dave from taking at least two other wives in that same time period who were with him while he was running from Saul. And even having a child or two during the process. Why didn't he invite Michal to come and join him? During that time, Saul gave his daughter, Michal, to another man. He, has, he shows up with two different names, whether it's Samuel or Kings. Or we'll call him Paltiel. Now fast forward to the days after Saul's death. The tribe of Judah has proclaimed David king. The other 11 tribes have made Saul's son, Ishbosheth, Ish their king. And then David and Abner, a general in his army, Ishbosheth's army, negotiate a plan to give David control over the whole kingdom. David laid down one stipulation. He said, I want my wife back. I paid 100, he actually says, he pay, I paid 100 foreskins for her because that was the asking price. He actually paid 200, but I want her back. 
And this leads to a sad scene in 2 Samuel where we see Bikal being taken from her home by soldiers and Paltiel following them down the road, sobbing in tears. Till Abner finally comes to him, if you want to live, you go back home. And he went back home. He seems to have loved Michal in ways that David never did. For a second time, we see Michal as a political pawn in the hands of a king. Now, in today's reading, we see Michal complaining about David's behavior. Her words suggest this image, a nearly naked David who's dressed only in an ephod, which is a priestly apron. But this doesn't match well with the David we know in Scripture, who was a man after God's own heart, a man who wrote incredible worship psalms. So before we jump to this conclusion that this is what she saw, we need to remind ourselves that the Bible doesn't say that David was wearing only an ephod. It just says he was wearing an ephod. I think this is a much better picture of of what she saw. David is not immodest, but he's got the ephod on. But So how do we reconcile this with her words? Well, keep in mind that she was the daughter of a king, and she's now the wife of a king. She knows that kings dress in royal robes when they go out into public. That's the rules. And it's important to keep up appearances. Can you imagine what our queen would say if her husband went out in public dressed in blue jeans and a sweatshirt? How dare you dress like a common man? You're the king. Well, he's not the king. Not the king. He's the, the queen's husband. But same thing. What David has done is he's discarded his royal robes and is dressed at best like a common priest and at worst like a common person. And she's offended. You've embarrassed the throne by dressing like an ordinary person. But is this the real problem? I don't think it is. I think it's just what she uses as an excuse. I think the problem really lies in their history together. I suspect that McCall despised the disconnect between her husband, the king, who danced and put on such a dramatic display of religious piety and fervor in public, and the man who had essentially ignored her love and treated her like a pawn, much like her father had done. To her, she doesn't see a righteous man dancing. She sees a hypocrite. She sees a fraud. Just a footnote before I wrap this up, which I will in just a second. It's been said that the note about her being childless shows that God judged her because she in turn was judging the way David enthusiastically worshipped the Lord. It could be true, but I think it's much more likely that it just states the obvious. David had nothing to do with that woman. He hadn't since she saved his life the first time. She was just a pawn. He had lots of other wives and concubines to serve his needs. I don't think he ever touched her again. And that's why she was childless. We need to remind ourselves today that we are always being watched. If I'm angry with my wife and daughter at home and then I behave at church with gentle piety, isn't that a disconnect? And how does it make my family feel? 
Dad's miserable at home, but he's so nice at church. If I go to church on Sunday and I, and I act righteous and I treat the people I work with on Monday badly, is there not a disconnect? Do they not notice? In my church in Oklahoma where I grew up, there was one family that basically ran the church. Two brothers in that family were pillars in the church. But we knew, and I wasn't even a teenager yet, we knew that the way they did their business during the week was another matter. There was a disconnect, and we noticed. I want to conclude with two realities. One, people are watching us all the time. Two, our lives will often fail to meet up with God's standards of behavior. We don't obey that well. So what can we do to avoid this? We keep confessing our sins and our failures to God and to one another. Confession. It's an important, important part of our lives. The ancient words of the confession are true for all of us. True for all of us. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone that which we ought to have done. And we have done that which we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. We need to regularly confess to God we haven't done the things we were supposed to do. And we have done the things that we should not have done. And we do this with the promise of Scripture ringing in our ears. If we confess our sins, he is faithful faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all, all wickedness.